Thank you so much for joining us on the Mwango Spaces again this Friday. Uh, last week, we had a really nice discussion that opened the year about the potato war. This week, sent made a press release where they uh, say that there's a new investor coming on board called GEM. That gives us a, an opportune moment to dig into Centum real estate itself as a company. I would say that oftentimes, uh, Centum is quite open to being hosted in Twitter spaces. It's unlike several companies that we've approached and tried to get on our spaces. The CEO is quite open and the team is also quite open. So for them, it takes usually a, a short text just to invite them for, to spaces. For that, we appreciate a lot. We'll dive right into the topic at hand. I want to, first of all, maybe start with the personal and then uh, move into the more serious stuff for today. So we'll start light and then maybe we can start with the Karuki, you can tell us a bit about yourself and what you do day to day and maybe how your journey has been to ending up at Centum Real Estate. Thanks, Mokaya. Good evening, everyone. I'm really glad to be here. And yes, it's always an honor to join Mwango Spaces as Centum as a group and now in this case, Centum Real Estate. I believe this is the second time Centum Real Estate is being uh, represented. Ken Bae may have talked in relation to Vipingo a while. Yeah, so my name is Samuel Kariuki, currently the MD for Centum Real Estate. Until three years ago, I was the group finance director at Centum level, which tells you my interests are primarily corporate finance uh, and investments. When I'm not dealing with real estate matters or corporate finance, I deal a lot with small-scale farmers, so the discussion on the potato was very passionate. I support small-scale farmers in outgrower schemes in a county just near Nairobi. We'll get into that potato a little bit and then you'll have to explain to us where you lie and whether you also want to import. As you said, you lie on the side of the small-scale farmer. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we'll get deeper into that. But now let's welcome Fred. Uh, Fred, so tell us what you do. I know there's a separate entity called Centum Capital Partners, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about yourself and what you do when you're not uh, speaking matters real estate and Centum. Okay, thank you very much, Mukaya. Good evening, everyone. It's my first time making it to Twitter Spaces, so uh, it's a good start to 2022. There are brighter things to come. So I had uh, Centum Capital Partners, which is the private equity arm of Centum Investment PLC. Uh, so overseeing all the investments by Centum into private entities. So we cover a broad range of sectors, financial services, consumer, education, power, real estate as well. So that is what I currently do. I've been with Centum. This is now my 10th year. Prior to Centum, I was in the world of investment banking with the Renaissance Capital and before that, Diane Blair Investment Bank. When I'm not speaking matters investment or others, you'll either find me running in some forest somewhere or playing golf. And in addition to that, a married man and a father of two children. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. So we'll, we'll get, start light now with uh, Sam. Sam, you can tell us, maybe picking a few lessons from your journey, what things you've learned along the way that you can share with beginners in this. I can speak broadly. Obviously, when we talk of investment in real estate, there is institutional investment, such as what Centum Real Estate is doing. In our various personal capacities, we also invest in real estate. I think every Kenyan is in some form a real estate investor, whether it's a small plot. Uh, or an apartment complex. The play really differs depending on whether one is looking at an institutional play or just their own a private investment. If I look at real estate, the one underlying benefit of a real estate investment, it provides that natural hedge against inflation 
which is why despite what might appear the face of an analysis to be a generally low rental yield relative to say a bond the inflation hedge uh, in a way counters so that is why in any investment portfolio whether it's private or an allocation by an institutional player real estate will always have some consideration or is worth having some consideration from that perspective. If I look at our own journey, when we started, when we made a deliberate decision back in 2008 to look at real estate as an asset class, it was clear to us that the legislation, not necessarily in doing single standalone sort of development, say an office block or an apartment, but development of urban nodes such that what you're creating is an investment-grade asset. And what I have found interesting, uh, especially since I moved to real estate, is how one is able to see real estate, not as the asset class itself, but being able to move a real estate discussion into a financial asset. So if you look at what we keep announcing to the market from a land bank, which is really a high-risk empty land bank, one is able to carry out a number of value creation activities. And on the other side of the tunnel, what you have is an investment-grade asset, just that the underlying is a, is a real estate investment. And I think a number of players, not just us, seeing real estate from that perspective, that it's gradually now in our markets becoming a much more sophisticated uh, financial asset. And it helps them to see it from that perspective as you go into real estate investment. It really is no different in terms of thinking of a business model. At the end of the day, it must convert to certain cash flows, whether it's rent or cash flows, or sales and net profit uh, or net, net cash returns. So it's no different from seeing and analyzing it like any other FMCG, for example. The concept of building inventory, selling inventory, or managing a yield are no different from managing an FMCG business or if you are doing a rental play. Managing any other asset. Perfect. Fred can map for us uh, exactly how Centum uh, Capital Partners and uh, also Centum Re and Centum how they relate to each other. What are the components? Who owns who in that uh, capital structure, and what percentages are owned by each? So maybe you can map for us that a little bit. Maybe using also your background in investment banking and all to help us understand the nitty gritty details of this. So maybe I start off with uh, Centum. So. Centum- uh, we've been around for 55 years now, since 1967. And uh, we've been an investor across different uh, asset classes, uh, different sectors in the private equity space. So everything that is not listed or a fixed income security is currently now managed by Centum Capital Partners on behalf of Centum. And for Centum, we have uh, approximately, let's say, over 30 billion shillings invested across uh, different uh, sectors, uh, including uh, real estate. Um, we, at Centum, own two real estate companies. Uh, one is Centum Real Estate, uh, which uh, is headed by Sam Karaoke, and then the other is Two Rivers Development Limited. Centum Real Estate is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Centum PLC. So we own that 100%. And then Two Rivers Development Limited is owned 58% uh, by Centum. Uh, we then have two other institutional investors uh, as uh, core shareholders in uh, Two Rivers Development uh, Limited. For Centum as an investment company, our business model is to invest in businesses, uh, grow the value of the businesses, pursue an exit at some point, either partial or full exit, 
and then recycle the capital into new opportunities. So that's the uh, constant uh, cycle that we are at in uh, uh, Centum. That cycle could range from anything from uh, four years, as we've seen in some businesses that we're investing in, to as long as uh, 42 years in some other uh, businesses that we're invested in. So it all depends on how far we are able to see the value and what our participation can be in creating value across the different uh, companies. I hope that answers the question on the ownership. Yeah, and all real estate is a kind of a long-term play. So maybe how does that work in terms of cash generation? How does a real estate investment look like uh, from cash for generation, maybe to also raising capital for the project and then finally to exiting a real estate project? What are the value addition metrics that you're looking at? Okay, understood. So if I take the example of Two Rivers Development, for instance, and I'd say for us, uh, just to note that for Centum, what we see as an opportunity that we're able to plug into is uh, where we acquire large parcels of land, create the master plan, uh, get development approvals, uh, which is very important to add value, and uh, then get a bulk of development rights allocated to every uh, master planned uh, development. Uh, so if I give the example of Two Rivers uh, Development, we began that process of land acquisition back in 2011. We then did the master plan um, and uh, got development approvals for 1.5 million square meters of uh, bulk. Each development right uh, comes with a selling price that we are able to monetize back in 20. 14, 2015, we then began engaging investors and we then got uh, two partners to come on board, uh, AVIC, which is the Aviation Industry of China, and ICDC, uh, now KDC, uh, to come in. And the valuation they came in at was not on the basis of bare land that we had acquired a few years before that. They came in on the basis of the sale price of development rights to other developers. Roughly speaking, from the journey of acquiring Bell to what we then sold down to other investors, we created maybe like a five times value uplift for investment. So that's the journey that we go through from a real estate point of view. The second phase of unlocking value is then doing the key installations within those master plan developments. If we take the example of a Two Rivers Development Limited, we began with the mall, the lifestyle center, which was the anchor development. In Vipingo Development, we give another example, which is a subsidiary of Centamri. The anchor development there was really around the housing. So there are different anchor developments that uh, will be identified for each development. And that is important for starting to create traffic into the site, which then again adds a level of value. Uh, after that, then we would then embark on the process of selling development rights to other developers. And in some cases, then the real estate companies also then undertake their own uh, developments, such as Centum Real Estate is doing, and some, I think, will speak more uh, to, to that. Now, as an investment company, what we would then be able to sell in future is the future cash flows, or the future cash flows that each company could then possibly generate. In the case of uh, the two real estate companies, that is Centum Real Estate and Two Rivers Development Limited, the future cash flows would then be proceeds from sale of development rights uh, to other developers or the profits. Uh, from the different real estate projects, say housing uh, developments that are undertaken, because those profits are what are distributable up to the shareholder. The sale of development rights to other developers is also what is distributable up. So it is those future cash flows that we then 
would then now present to another investor to come in as a new investor into the real estate company. Sam now can tell us a little bit about development rights. They seem like a very key component in terms of cash flow generation for a real estate project. So you can maybe tell us a little bit about what they are and how that, and, and after that, then you can start maybe breaking down some of the components that uh, constitute Centum real estate. So you can start with that and then also tell us the projects. I know Fred has mentioned them. Maybe you can give us a bit more detail on the various projects that are under Centum real estate. And the journey also to the formation of Centum Real Estate, because I know it's also a new entity. The consolidation happened, I think, around last year, the year before, uh, when you put all the projects under one company. Since we are going to discuss that company in a bit more detail, you can also give us a little bit of history on how that uh, it ended up becoming Centum Re and Centum Real Estate. It? Okay. Thanks, Fred, for that uh, detailed briefing. Okay, you've asked a broad question, so I'll start uh, maybe from the top and from the history. You are right that the consolidated business that's today called Centum Real Estate Limited was uh, formally named so and formally consolidated sometime in 2020, just prior to us raising and listing the housing bond that we raised. So today the entity we call Centum Real Estate is a holding company for four subsidiaries. One and the largest subsidiary is the Pingo Development in Kilifi. The second largest subsidiary is Palm Marina in Entebbe, Uganda. We have Uhuru Heights. Uhuru Heights is a subsidiary that acquired a piece of land adjacent to two rivers, where we have the Cascadia Apartments along Limon Road, doing some 400 apartments. And then we have our primary homes developer called Centum Development Kenya Limited, which is the primary residential developer. So everything that we are developing in Kenya Outside of Vipingo Development, the developer is Centum Development Kenya Limited. Below Centum Development Kenya Limited, then you have a number of project SPVs, very new project, because for each project we ring fence, we ring fence it through an SPV. So that's the business today. That structure took effect around 2020, just prior to our issue of the housing bond that we issued. Before that, then all these businesses were directly owned by Centum Investments and are operating under Fred Muremi in Centum Capital Partners. I think to give the history, uh, then Mukaya, um, one has to look at how does our parent, in this case Centum, view real estate investment from an investment thesis or, or an investment model uh, perspective? What's the overall value creation plan? If I were to draw a curve that moves from left to right, and on the left I have bare land, I would call that an initially illiquid high-risk asset. And the entry strategy there then is to secure large land banks in prime locations at a competitive price point. Then Moremi talked of a number of value creation activities that you would do post that land acquisition, including the design phase, you carry out your zoning, your master planning, the regulatory approvals are obtained for the master plan for any bulk you want to develop. There is some market validation at that early stage after the zoning where you sell a development right, and I'll come to define that as a way of validating the concept. And as you put in anchor projects, as you sell more development rights and uh, sort of build the organizational capabilities from a governance process perspective, what you had on the left is a high-risk liquid asset in bare land. On the other side is an operating company. So if I take Vipingo as an example, three, four years ago, uh, we acquired this piece of land. The completion was around 2016. 
And we then went through that process, carrying out the zoning, drawing up and getting approvals for the master plan. Uh, we've done a lot of work on infrastructure. There is a desalination plant which is currently running, opened up the land for an industrial park. Then we've started a very aggressive sale activity. So today, if I look at Vipingo development, what was a bare piece of land four years ago is a company uh, with its own management, a named and a team below him. It's a company with its own independent board of directors and more than $9 billion, uh, in sales from a development rate perspective and from um, unit sales or residential perspectives. It's now an active site where we have residential, affordable housing, mid-market bungalows and maisonettes. We have a mall and a commercial center that's coming up. And importantly, we have a number of industries that are in the process of setting up and already under construction. That generally describes the journey we, uh, our parent walks through in the real estate business. And what that does is very consistent with its uh, business model, where it prepares any asset to attract that party capital. That that party capital could be debt, that that party capital could be equity. All right, and you know, and, and I'm sure you'll be speaking more about terms. So this would have been what was carried out in Vipingo or Palmarina initially. But because our idea is to then create that investment grade asset, but at a scale level, we consolidated it such that if you are talking to that party investors, you know, debt, equity, or whatever, the discussion then is a Pan-African player of a certain size. Today, the business is worth $40 billion, case, validatable by whatever we are selling or whatever it is that, that we are developing. So that describes then the thinking behind the initial acquisition of the large land banks, the, create, the value creation activities which have happened in the last couple of years, and the consolidation of these entities into one holding company was very much consistent with the value creation plan that our parents sent them, had set up to do with um, that business. And that is what then culminated in the business being able to get a credit rating of its own, being able to raise a bond and list it at the stock exchange, and also raise a lot of other capital privately. So that generally describes the business. If I look at where the business is today, obviously it's a business that's able on its own to attract that party capital, equity and debt. It has been able in the last three years also to attract a lot of global capital. We are now discussing being able to list the business in the medium term at a, at a future date. So you can see that value creation plan sort of crystallizing in the discussion that we are having today, that already we have a capital commitment of 17 billion cash. So that's the history of the portfolio. So, so I, I want to speak now to the question you asked on development rights. And may I clarify from the beginning that the way the business is structured or what constitutes the business is what I'll describe as two divisions or two pillars of value. Sentam real estate is really two things. Number one, you have the growth business and the growth business is the, the home's development. Then you have the capital appreciation business and that, that's primarily the development rights. And of course, to the extent that the homes business is developing uh, on our own land bank, there is obviously, you know, the two divisions talking to each other. So let me start with the questions you asked, the development rights business, which is the capital appreciation business. And that is the one Moremi described and I have described in terms of the journey from a bare land bank to an investment grade asset, capital appreciation, and then you being able to, to realize. The question that I've had several is what is development rights and how different is that from land? And probably the more familiar example and case study I'll give is Two Rivers Development. 
our sister company where we have also real estate bought a lot of development rights and we are building our residential apartments. Today, what is Two Rivers is a um, 100-acre master planned development that has been licensed by the Nairobi County government to develop up to a bulk of 1.5 million square meters. In other words, you have a license or, or, or permissions on this 100-acre to build up a total square meters uh, of whatever properties, commercial and residential, up to 1.5 million square meters. That comes with a lot of conditions in terms of the ground infrastructure, uh, in terms of the open spaces uh, that will be the shared uh, open spaces and public realm. It comes with conditions on the sort of power installations uh, and water and sewage installations. So that all have been done. It comes with what must be done from an access point perspective, which is why you would see the overpass on Limulu Road. And I believe that the only overpass, carriage overpass constructed by a private company uh, in our market. If you come today to Two Rivers to, and you are a developer, you will not necessarily be buying land, at least not in the strict sense of that. You will engage us or you'll engage Two Rivers on a discussion of, I want to build an office property or tower of 10,000 square meters. What Two Rivers will sell to you is out of the 1.5 million permitted or authorized development bulk, it will sell to you 10,000 of that. It comes with a number of things. It comes, of course, with the, the land itself, the space where you will develop. It comes with already some pre-approvals because the SIA has been carried out. For example, we have certain approvals you do not need to go uh, and seek on your own. And like any other piece of land you will buy outside such a zone, you build only on what you have bought. You see, if I'm looking to build elsewhere, like in Kilimani, even if I buy an acre, Obviously, I can't do wall-to-wall as it were. I need circulation space. I need to think of parking. I need to have a gate. I need my walling. But if you're developing in this kind of uh, setup, then you don't have to think about that. You just develop pretty much beacon-to-beacon, wall-to-wall. Is the, the bulking up of your property. It comes with an automatic power connection, uh, water connection, and all the other utilities that would be cautioned. So you don't have to think about circulation space, for example, because the 100 acre has what would be shared circulation space. So your 10,000, your purchase price comes not just with the land, but with the right to use all these other facilities and shared spaces that elsewhere you'd have to acquire, such that if you then cost your building on a per square meter basis at the end of the construction process and compare that with another place where you had bought land as land and had to do all these things yourselves, on a per square meter basis, it becomes cheaper and more cost effective to develop or to acquire uh, land in such a master plan place on the basis of bulk square meters and not on the basis of acreage. That's what we call development rights. We are selling you, we've been licensed to develop certain square meters. To develop that, obviously, it has come with a lot of infrastructure components and a lot of other shared utilities. So we are selling you the right. We are selling you a portion of the rights that we have already acquired, if that if that makes sense. So that is the the capital appreciation part of the business. If I look at the valuation today, that part of the business is valued at 29 billion case, being the primary master development we have in Kilifi, Uganda. If I look at this 29 billion, just to give you context on that valuation, two years ago, you'd have acquired that Vipingo land for about 2.4 billion. Fast forward to today, a lot of value creation activities have been carried out. The site is no longer just a farm. And 
Ken and his team down there have sold as of today about 8.8 billion. You'll have seen half year report we had closed about 5.5 billion, closed and largely paid up. And subsequent to that, we announced that we have sold another 3.4 B. So we've sold about 8.9 B uh, case, comprising just slightly south of 35% of the total land bank. If you look at the context, then it means the capital that Centum would have invested in that company, about 2.4 B, has been returned. It has made a profit over and above that capital. And still we have 7,000 acres or so remaining to be either developed by us or sold to other developers. And you can see then how um, value is created. So this valuation of 29B represents or is very much supported by very significant transactions that have taken place on those land banks in the last two years or so. Before I speak on the homes and growth business, I can post there to see if I've answered the question. Yes, you have. We'll give you a small break. You can take a glass of water in the meantime. Maybe Fred can give us a little bit of detail on the press release that came out this week, the 17 billion and how that now plays into the Centum real estate uh, journey. Okay, thanks. Yes, so the press release that was made uh, was in relation to a commitment by a company called GEM, a growth enterprise uh, market, which invests in uh, businesses that are listed and uh, provides capital for their growth. So in this case, they have made a commitment to invest in Centamry for an amount of up to 17 billion shillings, uh, as and when called by Centamry, to enable Centamry then deploy that capital into its uh, projects. For us as a shareholder of Centamry, it's an important uh, commitment because as uh, we go about the business of uh, expansion and uh, building up the future cash flows that I mentioned earlier, then it's important that we have the capital to fund the expansion of uh, Centamry. Then it means the business of Centamry can continue to grow without necessarily requiring additional capital from Centum PLC. So Centum PLC will continue to be a shareholder in the short to medium term, if not the long term. And the business of Centum will continue then to have capital available to it to fund its expansion. So it's an important transaction for both Centum PLC and for Centum Re. The main condition for this investor is that Centum Re obtains a listing, which is main condition precedent that then Centum Re will be working towards. The listing, of course, is a journey on its own but that is one that we had already begun to prepare ourselves for so in due course i think as the center remakes the decision to list then there'll be future communication on that but it's all working towards being able to have capital available for center to fund its expansion so that's a that's a really good breakdown but from what sam talked about this week this seems like a natural state uh, to what you've been talking about so has it always been the case that you had in mind to list at some point and What's the listing plans looking like? Would you list at the NSC or maybe look to cross-list across other markets in East Africa and maybe Africa? Okay. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, so for us as Centum Investment and with all our companies that we are in, like I mentioned, our plan is always to be able to grow uh, those uh, companies. And the growth does require capital, which doesn't all have to come from Centum PLC. So at some point, we do always open up. Uh, to other investors and being able to attract either on or off the exchange then is a part of that uh, journey. In this case for uh, Centum Real Estate, the journey towards a listing I think began uh, pretty much when to raise the housing bond. 
uh, that some spoke about and uh, have it listed on the Nairobi Securities Exchange. So that's a journey that had already commenced and we shall continue on that journey. Insofar as listing venue, that is work that we'll then now be looking into. We'll have to look at which is the most appropriate market given the location of the company and its projects. We also have to think about where, to put it simply, real estate investors are found and where they are active On what markets are they active because it is useful to list in the jurisdiction where we expect to have most activity in terms of trading of the shares of a centum real estate. Uh, so there's a bit of homework that we will be doing to just identify what is the most appropriate listing venue, what are the fees, what are the costs, what are the regulations. Of course, we're already quite familiar with the Nairobi Securities Exchange, so it will be really be comparing a listing here against any other favorable uh, jurisdiction. But does it scare you also in terms of the centum NAV to share price kind of discount that is trading at? So does it scare you also in future uh, when centum re now lists, they may also have like similar challenges? I, I get you. So I'll answer it in two ways. The first is what I began to speak about, that we'd of course be looking into a market where the market is open and active as far as the real estate sector is concerned. So that will be a key criteria because... If trading volumes are low, what we have seen is that then a few shares trading then affect the value of the entire company. We'd, of course, be looking for an actively traded market and where real estate investors are already uh, active uh, in. Coming to Centum PLC, it does not scare us getting a value for Centum Real Estate on the market. And that is because today, from where our share price is trading at, the Centum real estate business has effectively been valued at zero, if not uh, negative today. If I look at the NAV today of Centum, which is at about about 60 shillings or so, if I recall correctly, trading at about uh, 25% of that value. That 25% of value, if you then look at what we hold in our marketable securities portfolio, which is fairly liquid, that what we hold in our marketable securities portfolio is roughly about 12 shilling per share uh, NAV. So it means then if you look at all our other private equity assets outside of real estate, it means the market is attributing a value of 3 shillings uh, to make up the 15 in total. Yet the NAV of all the other private equity assets outside of real estate is easily another 15 shillings. So between marketable securities portfolio and private equity X real estate, there's already 27 shillings of a value, yet the share price is at 15. So that means the entire real estate portfolio is being valued at zero or if not a negative 12. So any value that we can get from the traded price of Centum real estate that is higher than zero uh, then begins to make up for the valuation or, or the trading price for Centum PLC. So it does not scare us. In fact, if anything, we think will begin to help us in narrowing the gap between our NAV and the share price. Great. So switch to some a bit. Maybe you can give us a little bit of perspective on what GEM bring on board in terms of value addition. Why did you choose this particular partner to journey with you to listing? And also if you could release maybe a little more information about some of the terms and conditions that have come on board apart from what you told us about the listing condition. So maybe you can give a little bit more flavor on this uh, transaction and maybe answer the previous question which you also wanted. I know it's a lot, but uh, you can start nibbling from where you can. Okay, thanks, Mokaya. I wanted to add some flavor to the comments that Fred has uh, made around the NAV price discount. 
uh, and how we see it from a real estate perspective. And I think Fred is right in saying, if you look at the pricing of Centum shares, the market then does seem to price our own business. I guess to the extent that our own NAV is underlined by real assets, large land banks, real developments happening, we can all agree it can't be zero. Okay. The next question then, the valuation of those assets, for example, the land banks. And you recall I made comments earlier on what about uh, 30% of the land banks have currently fetched from a sale perspective. I think what Fred did also is already what we have sold in the Pingo alone in the last two years or so is equivalent to the market cap today. So obviously you can see what one can get then a flavor of our own internal thinking around that NAV price uh, discount. On that valuation, something else needs to be said. The, our, our NAV in our own books of accounts primarily reflects the value of the land banks, but importantly does not include the profit potential of all these projects that are currently being developed. Let me illustrate that. If today I'm doing a project of 100 units, and let's assume I have pre-sold it up to 95%, I'm collecting deposits, you know, I'm on cost to collecting deposits, and the profitability of this project, again, for argument's sake, is 100 million shillings. From an accounting perspective, one cannot recognize that revenue and that profit before certain conditions are met. And therefore, if you look at our balance sheet, then you have a lot of deferred revenue, obviously within which there is this deferred profit. So if I look at the current projects across East Africa, the profit potential, the profit that is embedded within them is a total of 4 billion cares, out of which by September, when we did a half-year reporting, only about less than 400 million had been recognized in our income statement and also therefore part of NAV. So you realize not only is the market not attaching any value to the land banks and the developments they are in, but also this other component, the deferred profit, is also not uh, featuring in uh, either in our own valuation or by extension then the, the centum NAV and the centum uh, share price. And that's important to understand for a real estate company. The key metric, the most important metric one would look at at any point is number one, the quantum of deferred revenue and the profit embedded in that deferred revenue because that is the only way one can be able to model future cash flows. You can only model next year's cash flows by looking at what's my deferred revenue and what's the targeted completion date and handover date of the project. Uh, otherwise, whatever profit is embedded in those projects will never feature in a book valuation of, of, of NAV, if that makes sense. I say that because it also gives color to the question you've just asked, uh, the strategic import to us of GEMS. And as I had mentioned earlier that our business is the development rights business, which is a capital appreciation business, and I talked about that. We have the growth business, which is our homes business. To an earlier question I'd seen from you, the matches today, the development right, not surprisingly valued significantly more. Actually, the core of the business is homes development. And that homes development, the overall mission from the very beginning has always been a Pan-African play, not a Kenyan play, not a Ugandan play, not an East African play, but a Pan-African play. So the diversification to Uganda, as some years back, should be seen in that light. It was always meant that we shall grow outside of our home market to the wider East Africa and then from East Africa to the rest of Africa. 
So that remains uh, in play. You should expect in the medium term to see activities and announcements. Now, obviously, for us then to grow outside the two countries you're operating, you need growth capital. And I suppose that then answers the question of the import of GMs giving the capital commitment because a significant portion of that capital would be used to fund our growth in East Africa and beyond East Africa because the ambition of the business in the medium term is to grow beyond East Africa. Advice that whenever you look at the business, I know we have this six months or so uh, regular reporting. To me, the most important metric is always to look at the value of what has been sold or pre-sold, but for reporting reasons has not been recognized in the books because that is what gives you an indicator a flavor of the cash flows that the business will be generating of the next year or the next whatever period. And in this valuation that James did and in making this capital commitment, that was primarily the variable of interest. What is the pipeline today? What is the planned pipeline? What is its projected revenue and, and profit potential? And what that does that show from what is likely to be the cash return of, of, of our period? Of- Solid points there. But I wanted to say, did you also maybe engage other partners in the process of maybe selecting gems? Or did, it was this like a single kind of sourcing kind of transaction? And also in terms of beyond the capital, do, will gems be involved in the day-to-day running operations of the business? Or are they more like just providing the capital and leaving you to run the business? And maybe a final question that is also I've also seen is how does that level of dilution look like for Centum, who own 100% now uh, of Centum Re? So if you draw down the entire 17 billion, then how would that final shareholding structure look like when you've drawn down this commitment? Okay, thanks for that. If you look at what this gem structure uh, implies, is that at the point of listing, absent subscription by other, full subscription by other investors, they have committed and they would acquire whatever shares are put to them. And all that means then is that James would be a shareholder in a listed company. By the current valuation of the business, even just by taking the book valuation, the 17B would, would be less than 50% of our book valuation which then tells you that um, in, in response to the question of whether they would be taking control, that would not be resolved in, in them taking a control. If you look at Centum Real Estate, now the consolidated business, one thing that should strike you if you compare to the rest of the portfolio that Moremi manages, it's the only large business where Centum owns 100%. The next uh, large subsidiary or the, la- the next large portfolio company, I think the holding is about 60 uh, or so percent, it was always a natural consequence that all these value creation activities, which culminated in the holding company being consolidated, were always meant to attract that party capital. And that, as Rimi uh, spoke so too eloquently, is what Centum does, you know, create investment, create assets of scale and avail those opportunities to other investors. So it was never expected that in the long term, Centum would be 100% owner of the business. This is just one of its many portfolio companies. As to whether they will be involved in the day-to-day management, you realize just given who they are, they are a financial investor. This would be an investment in a listed company in the same way they have investments in other listed companies. So in terms of the operations of the business and we remaining behind 
the driving seat, that would certainly continue. Okay, thanks, Sam. I think that's uh, very well put. So for us, it's uh, really a question of continuing the journey that we've been on, on uh, creating investment-grade assets, growing value, bringing in other investors to continue the expansion of the businesses that we are in. And that's really the journey with the Centum Re. So GEM was an important uh, transaction uh, for us, an important commitment to provide capital for that uh, growth as a journey. And as uh, Sam has said, they will. They are not looking to take a controlling stake. They are not looking to get involved in the management. So the Centum Re, Re team will continue to be very active on that uh, growth journey that they are already on. Thank you. At this point, we've engaged uh, for one hour. So it's the best time to invite the audience to engage with us. So below the pinned tweet, you can send in your questions. And also we may allow a few people to also make requests to come and join um, and speak. So, But in the meantime, maybe you can give us your final thoughts maybe about the transaction itself and maybe if there is anything that you may have missed out and in terms that you'd want to address. And also especially because uh, the last report was uh, in September, I think for Centenary, and the next one I think should be six months later. Between then and now and looking into the new year, what would you want investors to be thinking about as you finish the second year of operations as a full uh, company? What would you want investors to keep an eye on? And I know you've emphasized deferred revenue because that's also a big challenge in terms of IFRS and all this. Uh, there's also a lot of questions maybe around the two rivers. So maybe you can answer the speculations around there. People saying that maybe the the two rivers development is also like struggling in terms of finances. Maybe you can head on address that so that you're able like to address the concerns in the minds of investors and those people involved in the project. So you can start with Sam and then Fred. Okay, thanks for that, Mukaya. You know, I amplifying on the comments I made earlier, what's really the intrinsic value of the business. Like any other business, what anyone would be buying into or investing into is the future cash flows. Of, of that business. Our cash flows come from two sources, which is the homes business and the development right business. Across both the, the success that has been registered, numbers are numbers, they, they speak for themselves. If I were to look at the development right business, today we are sitting on a receivable of about about what, about 5 billion shillings, having sold upwards of almost 9 billion shillings in the last one and a half years, collected 4 billion shillings. So if I look at the business today, then I'll be saying in the medium term, there's 5 billion shillings that is being collected on a monthly or on any period basis that represents the future cash flow of the business. But also importantly, what does that then say based on the transaction multiples that have been achieved on the underlying value of those capital appreciation assets? That's one side. And I appreciate those are finite at some point. One will sell all the development rights, land is finite, which then goes to the next question of what's the growth story of the business. And the growth story is our homes business. Again, the intrinsic value there lies from two components. The opportunity we see today to expand beyond our current presence in East Africa, but also the performance of the portfolio. This particular side of the business started operating just about less than three years ago. And today it's building about 2,000 500 units, either building or has already handed over 2,500 units in that period. In terms of the sales achieved in that period, it's about 15 billion shillings, of which more than 6 billion has been collected as cash deposits, and you have a receivable of the difference. Again, that tells you the cash generating potential of the business. That's the model we are looking to replicate outside of Kenya and Uganda. It's been a very capital-light business because outside of our land banks where our enterprise was 
very attractive where we have grown outside of our land banks we have tended to do jvs instead of upfront deployment of capital to acquire the land so it's very capital light which then enhances our overall return on equity so the points i made around looking at the deferred revenue and the deferred profit speaks to my comment around look at the intrinsic value of the business for a real estate business i suppose it's not what PNL profit is reported every six months. It's just a requirement, a regulatory requirement to report every six months. But it's more of what is the pipeline size? How is it being executed from a delivery perspective? And what is the embedded profitability of that portfolio? And when is it likely to, to come? And from that perspective, then I'm very comfortable and very happy with what the business has done in the last two and a half. To the question of two rivers, I, I probably would look also at the same time period. If I look back at this project, the most important milestone, the first major milestone was achieved in February 2017 when the retail center and the office blocks were completed and commissioned and went to market and started operating. By that time also, two other third-party developers were on site, Victoria Commercial Bank and NC Lodge, but there are no residential developments. And yet, you know, appreciating the residential component is a key anchor to all other commercial and retail operations. In those two and a half today, what is already under construction from a residential perspective is 540 apartments, the first of which is being handed over in February um, this year. So next month or next month, but one will be handing over the very first residential project in Two Rivers, if you have it completed. Uh, along the road, we have 400 others coming up, uh, part of which will be completed this year, and some high-end next to Runda. So 540 currently under construction. But what I found interesting in the last one year since COVID, we launched a large affordable housing project, and I use that word affordable with some qualification. Muzizi project is a large project. It's about 1,600 homes. So we launched the first phase of two blocks about Jan last year. We've just broken ground a couple of weeks back. It's pretty much fully sold out. We are also looking to close a number of institutional bulk of text. You will be seeing some announcements around that when they are completed. They are still confidential, which would mean within this year alone, that 1,600 apartment will be more than 50% pre-sold. What this does is two things. One, development of residential project within the two rivers precinct brings them within the captive precinct. In our estimation, when we are done with the residential projects, we'll be having 20 to 30,000 people living within the two rivers city. The first residents will start living there, which is a major milestone. What we have now seen from the various products is that there is very significant demand, especially for the affordable and mid-market homes range. And that is what will be driving the realization of this because you know, the last couple of years were about the value creation plan. Now it's about value realization. Working with other partners, Centum Real Estate itself being a developer there, Two Rivers Development itself developing other homes and working with other partners uh, who are already in the pipeline will be the next natural phase of this company realizing uh, the value that has been created over the last six years or so since we started building the mall. You may have seen a bit of that recently with the announcement that was made on the Two Rivers Power Company, which attracted some 800 million shillings in new capital. It's part of that realization plan. A number of deals, again, from development rights acquisition, that real estate, 
have already come through and you'll be seeing them as and when those are announced to the market. If you think of this project and compare it, say, to Wembley Park in the UK or closer home to similar developments uh, like Waterfall City in South Africa, the value creation period or the time these projects take to mature from when they're initiated, our own experience is no different from similar developments in Africa, South Africa being a case study where this is common, or even here in Kenya because we do have other comparable master developments that are currently happening. The maturity period is just what it is. It's the natural course of, of such projects. So we see where it is as exactly where it would have been. If you come to the site now, it's a very active development site. Development then means an illiquid development rate is being converted uh, to cash, uh, so to speak. You may also have seen other developments around the mall itself and the capital transactions that have happened. I would say all this respond to the comment, Mokaya, you made about what's happening on the capital side of the business. I do recall when James Moria was giving his half-year briefing, he did announce to the market that Centum, with our support, has embarked on a capital restructure of that business. And the number of announcements you have seen towards that end, in a way, speak to the comment or to the announcement that James made sometime back in November. I hope that broadly responds to the to the question. Yes, thank you. Now it's, we'll switch to Fred. Uh, maybe there are a couple of questions on uh, two rivers. Uh, maybe a better uh, place to speak. One question is about how many acres have been sold to third-party developers since its inception for two rivers and also the, the issue of debt that is hanging over two rivers. How is that being dealt with presently? And then maybe you can come back to this to also tell us if the, the fact that you have injected now some capital from GEM, would you then think that at some point you come back to tap into the debt markets? That would be for some after Fred. So let's start with Fred and then you can move. Okay, thanks. So as you recall, we've been speaking about uh, development rights. Uh, so that's the stock the, the stock that uh, Turiwa's development has is not uh, acres, it's uh, development rights, how much can be developed within the property. Out of 1.5 million square meters of developable bulk or development rights, we've so far sold about uh, 200,000 to different developers, uh, some of it taken up by the mall, some by the, uh, City Lodge, some by Victoria Properties, and there are a number of other ongoing transactions. So there's still another 1.3 million square meters of uh, development uh, rights available for sale. So there's still a lot that we can uh, monetize uh, from Two Rivers Development Limited. The debt that sits at uh, Two Rivers Development Limited is then secured by the uh, property here. And as we continue with the selling of development rights, then the debt gets uh, serviced. Uh, from the sale uh, proceeds of the development rights. Uh, so there hasn't been strain for Trivers Development Limited in being able to service its uh, debt uh, obligations. So as, as a shareholder, we are not concerned about the, the ability of Trivers Development Limited to be able to service uh, their debts. Uh, I know we've been speaking about uh, development uh, rights a lot and square meters. Maybe a useful perspective is when you say 1.5 million square meters of bulk available, in two rivers, if you give a typical uh, three-bedroom apartment plus a servant's quarter, ball and suit at about 150 square meters, uh, that's typical in Kilimani or so, it means then there is a potential for developing around 10,000 homes to two rivers. So we still have a lot of stock two rivers to be able to sell to other developers and also to be able to develop uh, ourselves. Thanks, Morimi, for that. 
so I think the question was whether then one would take debt given the availability of equity capital. The way I would want to answer that, Luca, is to say, suppose I have a project that will cost me a billion to develop, and I have a billion in equity. Obviously, I have a choice to deploy the entire one billion to develop this project, and it would be debt-free. However, that would be a very suboptimal allocation of your equity capital compared to a capital structure or a financing structure where part of the project is levered. With a billion, I can be able to lever that to do projects worth, for argument's sake, five billion. If I go with a capital allocation structure that has a debt-equity deposit mix, so it means for every one billion, I can do projects worth 5 to 10 billion by levering at the project level through a project finance facility than trying to allocate pure equity to a project. You know, so I'm speaking that purely from a corporate finance perspective. It is suboptimal to have a 100% equity funded project. And that is why in any project, the project IRR will typically always be much lower than equity IRR just from a corporate finance perspective. So that answers the question then that with this capital, this equity capital raise we are looking at, it allows you to do projects worth significantly more than, say, the 17B. If I take 17B as a new equity that one would raise, I can do projects worth 17B, but that would be suboptimal. I, I can then do projects 5X more by levering at the project level. So a typical project will always have uh, an equity component. It will always have a deposit cost component, customer deposits, and then the balance will be made up of debt. That should be a very optimal financing structure, allows you to enhance your return on equity or your equity IRR. So this is a question to either of you. Cascadia, how is the project doing? Maybe you can give an update on the current status of the project and the intended way for. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mukher. The site is by the road, which means any customer is you know, welcome to have a look at the site. Happy to say that after the challenges we had, they were not specific to us. With the contractor, we terminated the contractor some time back, I believe in July. And by August, we had handed over the same site to another developer who has been on site since then. So if you come to the site, you will see it's now a busy construction site. The most of the heavy lifting from a superstructure perspective has been completed and what has been happening now is just the interior and exterior walling and partitioning. We have now a very accelerated to remain largely within our original handover dates. So we are now happy with the progress that project is making from a development perspective. Just to clarify why that initial challenge was there, as I said, it's not specific to us. I think it was in the public domain, the challenges that contractor was having on several sites here in Nairobi, some bigger than our own site, a site nearby and another site on Riverside. They defaulted on all those sites. I think they had another default in a number of other sites across East Africa. And yet, you know, this is a large contractor. This is, you know, a 53-year-old player in the East African market, uh, well known for their quality. So it was indeed a surprise to us at the default. So it was not specific to us. It was general in both Kenya and Uganda. We moved in fast, terminated that and handed over. That project is now in progress and I personally would be happy to host you on the site. For 
maybe the next question Moka was going to ask is uh, it's funding. It's of course fully funded. It's a fully funded project. Great. We're giving opportunity to a lot of people to ask questions. There are a lot of questions that always come through on, on WhatsApp or on DMs, but today it seems it's very dry in terms of questions. Asking for as many questions that are out there, we have the people here who want to answer your questions. So perhaps maybe aside, a, a question for me is because I've also been following the project of Econ. I think they've done really well in student housing. I'm wondering, have you done any analysis in terms of maybe a feasibility study in terms of uh, Centum re-exploring, doing a project around student housing in Nairobi or around East Africa? It's either of all you can answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fred, Fred can speak up to me. A, a business model speaks to the business objectives and all of them differ. We at Centum Real Estate, our policy from a capital perspective is one of high capital velocity. In other words, we see our capital as being very impatient and accordingly, we do not hold assets on the rental play. We want to deploy capital and in two years, we return that capital plus the return. And therefore, fundamentally, our homes business is going to be a develop and sell business model. Uh, and of course, supporting the sales that we are doing on development rights. I suppose if you're looking at student housing as an asset class. Obviously, it's, it's an attractive. There is a market opportunity for it. And Econ, for example, has proven that. But the ultimate investors in their respective funds are people who are chasing a yield. We are not chasing a yield. From our perspective, we are looking at capital velocity. So our capital deployed within three years must have come back plus its return. Yeah, Moremi, you could add. Okay. No, th- th- thanks, Sam. I think uh, that's clear. Uh, nothing useful to add. All right. I'm challenging people to ask questions now because uh, it's super dry. But there's a question that has come through about, are you assessing any joint ventures beyond Nairobi? I know Vipingo is there, but uh, there are others that you're exploring. And also the other question that is coming in, how are sales going for the joint ventures under CRE, Mizizi, Cascadia and Riverbank? So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how the sales progress is going, how much is left to be sold and how much you sold already on some of these projects. Thanks, Mokaya, for that. Yeah, business is our growth business. And one of the more strategic initiatives we've undertaken in the last two years is to source for land outside our own land banks in communities or in neighborhoods that we feel have a demand, especially affordable housing. On our homes business, one of the growth pillars has been to diversify away from our land or where we are holding land to areas where we think there is de- or, or areas where we have proven demand because we must remain a, you know, a, a customer or a demand. So today we have two joint ventures. Uh, we are developing some apartments in Kasarani. We are developing some apartments in Waraka. And we've been exploring some joint ventures, places along Mombasa Road on the islands of Kenya and along Gong Road. So we remain open to new joint venture opportunities. It's really part of the growth pillar of the homes business. And beyond that, yes, again, we would look in Kenya. We are in Kilifi and Nairobi. We see attractive opportunities in affordable housing in our major urban centers, for example, Nakuru and Kisumu. So we remain open to joint ventures in major urban centers here in Kenya. Which in Uganda, we've been exploring outside of Entebbe nearer to Kampala some new joint joint ventures. So in general the answer is yes. We we remain open to you know landowners who would want to partner with a credible partner or a credible institution such as Centum Real Estate to monetize their land but also to bring our strong brand to bear. About the sales, uh, did you have some comments on that? Yeah. So out of what we are developing currently, 
71% have been pre-sold. Our operating model, once we go post-ideation and design of a project, we go through a process we call market validation, where we pre-sell, and we never progress from an approval to break ground before we have pre-sold 30% of a project. So any project that's starting means it's already pre-sold north of 30%. Currently, everything we are selling, or rather developing, we are at 71% pre-sale, uh, which is something we are happy about. For the units we have already completed, uh, like one project in Uganda and the affordable homes in Vipingo, we are talking of already 96% of those units have been sold. You've started seeing half-year results, some of them coming through in our income statement, and we can expect for the match results, the significant balance of what has been completed will be coming through in the income statement. We are very happy, actually, with the sales performance. Ironically, and I don't know if that's the right term, if I look at performance from a cash perspective in 2020, the year of COVID, and 2021, our collections in 2020 were about 33% higher than the pre-COVID year. And last year, as you saw in our announcement, we were, again, significantly higher than 2020. If you look at our half-year results, you will notice that by half-year, we had already exceeded the collections for the previous financial year in whole. And I think that, again, speaks to the not just the performance, because there is a performance, but the performance, I suppose, speaks to the credibility of the brand with our customers, but also the strong bias, if I look at our product portfolio mix, to affordable and mid-market units. I've had a lot of talk over the years about real estate, bubble burst, market being saturated. We've always taken a different view to that. I think that different view is very much validated by the sales performance that we have looked at. Let me classify one class and call it affordable mid-market, meaning it's not government affordable, but it's, it's not your typical middle class so affordable mid-market is all these price points below uh, 10 million, something equivalent to what one would find in Raqqa. The reality is that that market has remained fragmented for decades and we've not had large institutional players playing in that segment. And what then you've seen in various research reports is a very significant cumulative deficit. Some reports estimate that at 2 million. And if we're into urban economics, the kind of sprawl one sees in Nairobi, just this sprawl of flats, or one can see in the other major cities like Nairobi, in a way does validate that assertion that there's a cumulative deficit given just that fragmented supply, and that's why non-institutional players have been trying to plug into that. I think there is a significant market opportunity in the affordable mid-market housing space, and that investment this is, which has driven us in the last three years, has largely been supported by our own sales performance and our own cash collection uh, performance. Uh, Before he asks answers, uh, there's a question here also maybe you can comment on, maybe risks that are pertinent to Centamri, the business model that you operate, so maybe you can uh, highlight and what you've been doing in regards to mitigating them. Uh, and another question is about the real estate uh, property market in Kenya. Do you feel like we're in a bubble, boom, or where are we in the capital cycle? And does that worry you as a business also? So maybe Fred, you can take. Okay, uh, thanks. So if I begin with the second question, so are we in a real estate boom bubble? I think as Sam has explained, from what we are seeing on the housing side, we are very far away from a bubble and met demand at the moment on the housing side, particularly the 
affordable and mid-market segment. And our own testament is that, uh, like Sam has said, we are actually able to develop, sell, and collect more than we've even been collecting compared to two years uh, ago. And I think it's really a question of that. I think we have the right locations. We have the right uh, product for the market. There's a whole market validation exercise that Centamri conducts before breaking ground. And I think that is what has been helpful. So we can't speak about a general market uh, boom or bust. I think our own experience is that the uh, housing segment with a lot of unmet demand. And it's one we think we shall continue playing in for uh, quite a while. The good thing is that we have the property available to keep it developing or already acquired. So we are not necessarily subjected to the vagaries of the market when you're looking to acquire and develop more properties. As far as the risks we see in the real estate business, I think of like in many businesses, the primary risk will always be around market risk. And uh, are you developing the right product for the market? And that is true of many businesses, not just a real estate business. Many times people may have a business idea, go out, invest, go out in the market only to find that the market was saturated with a product or the market does not require the product. In our case, uh, we've established the practice of market validation where we will not break ground on a project until we have uh, at least 30% of the units, proposed units, uh, taken up by uh, customers. So for us, our market validation test is a real one. It's not uh, an academic exercise, and that significantly uh, mitigates on the risk. The remaining risk around the real estate development, particularly then, is really around the construction risk, which, again, the Centre Real Estate team, I think, has been able to manage that fairly well, uh, fairly tight contracts with the, con- with the different contractors. The supervision is in place both by the Centum RE team and also by uh, third uh, parties. So I think the risks there are fairly well uh, mitigated. I hope Mokaya, that answers the questions to me. Yes, we have James here who wanted to ask a question directly. Sure. James, would you ask a question directly? Yes, uh, thank you. I've got a quick one on um, your pricing points. There's a perception that your properties are a bit overpriced. And I have in particular projects in Kilifi. I have had occasion to visit uh, some of those projects and also others that are being done by different entities. And you're finding a price uh, differential, especially for, um, let's call them Mysonets, where the price differential is 10 million, such that you have properties which are going for about 5 million. And then uh, you have center ones which are being sold for about 17 million. And I'm wondering, what informs uh, your pricing and especially why would there be such a big price differential in an area where the location is the same, the size of the property is relative? I don't know. Okay, uh, thanks. I'll go first and then hand over to Kariuki to proceed. I think the ultimate test on pricing is whether the customers are willing to pay for the product. On the Maisonets you spoke about, I think we've had very good success in selling the uh, product of 75 units over 80% are sold. Maybe some has a more uh, recent uh, number. So ultimately, the price point and the product that the customers are picking, I think, is what is key. And so far, the customers, I think, have picked the product. There will always be something cheaper. There will always be something more expensive. Some people will buy a Nissan, some others will buy a Ferrari, and there's market for each of, of those. So I think for us, thankfully, for the products that we've put out in the market, we've always had customers uh, being willing and able to pay uh, for the product. 
Over I think I'll just add to the comments Moreni made. But I suppose when you say market validation, it's not just about pre-selling. That market validation exercise is giving you a lot of information because you're telling a customer, I have this product in this location and this is the price point. And the traction for that specific product tells you a lot of things about the customer's preference or lack of it for the specific product tells you a lot about the pricing point. Is it too low? Is it too high? It can be high, but it can also be low because, you know, the speed with which a particular product is being taken tells you what the customer perception on the price point is. So in a way, the market validation exercise, in addition to just pre-selling to the risk or market perspective, is giving you a lot of information on what the customer's thoughts or reception of a product is from multiple facets, price, typology, product itself, etc. In some of our locations, we've gone to market with a particular product. We've tested it over a period of time, received feedback, and aborted uh, a, a product. Either the price point was not right, or that particular typology was not preferred in a specific location. So there is more to market validation other than just pre-selling and, and de-risking from a market perspective. Those are the additional comments. So moving on, another question that is coming through is about, there's a Chinese property developer apparently called Edelman who does market ma mass market housing and they do a, they get a lot of subsidies from the government. So the question is, do you also intend to work with the government in terms of getting subsidies? But I think also another question that I've seen that has come through is from Eric. How does Uganda property markets look like when compared to Kenya? What's the price ranges in properties in Uganda and how do they compare to what we have in Kenya ourselves? Sam, Sam, you can start. I think this is kind of your forte. <laughs> okay. No, no. Thanks. Thanks. So in response to the earlier question on tax subsidies, it's generally well known the government of Kenya has put in place several incentives for affordable housing developers and has defined the criteria, particularly from a price perspective or price point for qualification for these incentives. I'm happy to say in at least three of our projects, we have received strategic partnership status from the PS4 housing, meaning much as the pricing point might be slightly higher than the government recommended price point, they see them as strategic partners in the overall affording housing scheme. We work very closely with the PS. He's very supportive in person. And where we think we could qualify for tax rebate, we will definitely apply for them, even though we might operate you know, in strict terms outside the boundaries of what the government defines as affordable housing. My sense is, you know, the government has come round to a middle point between their own preference from a price point and the realities uh, of the market. And especially this conundrum that affordable housing is, in Nairobi as an example, is needed closer to the CBD and commercial nodes, even though that is where land is most expensive. People who need affordable housing uh, primarily want to live closer to the urban nodes. So from that perspective, the government has come around to seeing our point as developers on the need to be very flexible around the, the pricing points. We continue to push around that so that we can bring more developers uh, under KPDA within that qualifying bracket for the rebates. Then from a Uganda perspective, we've had an excellent experience in Uganda and surprisingly, the single best performing project from a sale and cash collection perspective is our affordable housing project in Entebbe. If I was to list all the projects and show it as most cash collected, the Bella Vista affordable housing is the best, is the, is, is the leader of the whole park. 
Uh, and I think that simply then answers the question, what's the market opportunity in Uganda? If you think of housing from an institutional, we see Uganda then as a virgin market with very significant opportunities. Unlike in Kenya, where the fragmented supply means you have all types uh, of competitors, uh, there isn't necessarily that kind of experience. It's a different market. Most people still around Uganda uh, and in Tebe would probably be living on their own land, on old bungalows. But as the demographics there transform, so is the market for real estate transforming. We are now seeing a lot of apartment projects coming up. I'm happy to say that projects there, Palm Marina has been, from the onset, a market leader. That particular project to illustrate has not needed any debt to date, has not needed any equity to date. It has been primarily funded from customer deposits. And what we are developing is fully sold out. So it's a market we are very uh, keen to expand on. Today we are in Entebbe, but we are looking to grow into sites around Kampala through joint ventures. Maybe I can ask another question. Uh, this can now go more to Fred. In terms of financing apartments and places to live, what's the mix you've seen in terms of cash and mortgage partnerships with banks and in terms of, for the customers who come to you? How are they financing some of the projects? And then maybe... And then the question from George, who's asking how 360 Pavilion is doing and whether there's a contractor issue also there in terms of the delay. Uh, so we can start with Fred and then Sam. Thanks, Mukai. I think insofar as how customers are funding the purchases of their units, because for the bulk of our product, we have very flexible payment plans where customers are able to pay during the course of construction. We've actually seen the overwhelming majority of buyers being cash buyers and paying during the construction uh, period. So we've not seen too many mortgage-funded customers, which I think is an interesting uh, dynamic for us. It's a good dynamic. It also means that uh, customers have confidence in the brand, uh, Amri, and are uh, able to put their money during the course of construction. And that, I think, uh, is important in lowering the cost of funding both for the customer and also for Santa Maria as a developer. Yeah, thanks. Over to you, Karyuki. Thanks, Moremi. I will answer the question on 365 Pavilion. And I suppose the customer or the person asking the question would be asking from the question of what I've had is delayed groundbreaking. I think 365 Pavilion is an illustration of the comment I made earlier on the market validation process. You will appreciate when we went to market with this particular project, the product was different. We were in the market selling uh, slightly larger, slightly more expensive typologies. I think the three-bedroom, for example, was going for 13 million. So that project was modeled around the Cascadia project being done by Huru Heights within the wider two rivers precinct. We were in the market for a couple of months, and the market reception told us that for that specific location, that price point was not going to work, just based on the sales traction this then. We then went into a redesign exercise to change the typology and, of course, accordingly the price point, which happened, and we went back to market. With a new typology, then we have gained significant traction. On the first phase of that project, I think we are now slightly above 40% pre-sold, which means that we've attained the market validation status and have now in the last couple of weeks, been going through the usual bidding process and award process. So the customer can then uh, sit tight. The delay was occasioned by a change of product from an original typology to this new typology. With this validation now, we are going now through 
the standard procurement process. And within the quarter, we should then be having a very firm groundbreaking. But the project is on. Oh, perfect. And the questions are fewer now. And there's one listener who sent their questions at least very early. One of the questions he asked is about rates. Have you guys considered venturing into rates because it's of the tax benefits maybe to investors and all? Okay. Yeah, sure. I can take that. Go first. So, yes, we had looked at uh, rates. Uh, that's been uh, fairly, rates have been with us for some fair amount of time now. I remember we had looked at it even as way back as maybe 2015 when we were considering that for two rivers. We may have shied away from that for Centum Real Estate for two reasons. Number one, because we are primarily in development phase, the development rate comes with a number of restrictions per the regulations which don't quite work very well for developers, basically constrain, basically funding and being able to raise both debt and equity capital. So it's easier to work outside of the rate framework. The other, and maybe it might be more for market participants to ponder amongst ourselves, is uh, we've seen two rates in the market, listed in the market. The performance hasn't been too great of the trading price and trading volumes in the market. So again, maybe there's a market issue there that we need to be looking at. So on a balance of uh, all factors considered, it's uh, much more profitable, even when taking into account the tax considerations, it's much more profitable at the moment for development purposes to operate uh, outside of the rate. All right, I think we've come almost to the end. We'll get to the softer questions. One of the softer questions is about people who want to join St. Marie, maybe as employees, uh, as potential employees, especially graduates. Any advice to them in terms of the application process and how they can maybe participate in this? And also like, what are you guys looking for when these guys apply to work with you also? So maybe you can give them a bit of career advice and also a bit of perspective on what it feels like to work within Centum. I should say (laughs) that prior to this session, I did a little bit of looking around in the annual report and I noticed that you jointly own around 800,000 shares of Centum. So I think uh, that having skin in the game is also a good thing. So you should should start with the largest shareholder, who is uh, Sam. May I say it's my my single largest uh, location of my family wealth. But on most serious note, I think Mokaya, that that speaks to my own personal uh, and private perspectives on the intrinsic value, not just of the business I run, which is the largest part of Centum, but also of, of Centum itself. And I was joking to you earlier that, yes, I'm looking to add to, to more of those shares. As to the employment, just my, and this is now me speaking, uh, not just as the leader of the business, but as an employee, there are not many organizations especially in our side of the world, which give young graduates the sort of growth opportunities that the wider Centum group and we borrowing from Centum, uh, Centum Real Estate gives. And this is primarily from not just the initial processes of inducting and training, but also the sort of stretch assignments we give them and the exposures those assignments provide to them. So if I look at the graduate trainees that we've hired in the last seven or so years, very early stage on their careers, they are involved in very large deal originations, deal exits, fundraising activities that they probably would not have had the opportunity to or exposure to in a different environment. And I think for me, if I look at our our brand as an employer, that's probably what has stood out 
for me personally, that's the opportunity I've had to grow. But also what we provide now to our younger staff. It's a generally very young organization, below 30. I also look at the more senior people, Fred, myself and others. Just given the combined experience, especially on the investment side, on the uh, deal structuring on corporate finance, you, you, you could argue it's a, you know, it's a think tank from which now younger people can be mentored from and learn from. So it's an attractive place to, to work. We do advertise on an ongoing basis, new positions. We also do offer internship opportunities. I think at any point within real estate, I do have internship opportunities. So whoever is asking can, one, keep checking the careers site, but also reach out directly. Uh, a good number of the internships that have been given are people who reach out directly. It's a great place to learn. On, on reaching out directly, I should say that it's an underrated skill in terms of the bold ones actually do succeed in the end. So I think it's very good to just directly ask, call uh, email sometimes or so, like just say what you want and what you're offering. And the, the traditional kind of CV uh, cover letter uh, may not be the best in modern times. If you know the Twitter handles of some of the people, you can reach out, have coffee, talk. In the Absolutely. process, I think you get to learn beyond just seeking for jobs as a look to networks. I think I can add on that. And then you said really wise words. Uh, so, Fred? Yes, I agree with what Sam has said. On a few more shares than he does. Uh, and you should tell us if you're adding more shares now that it's uh, down from all-time high. You're taking all the salary and taking it in form of shares only? or Very, very good question. We are currently in a closed period uh, at the moment but it's definitely one of the most attractive investment opportunities uh, for us so looking at it. You can answer the question about career advice that you can give and then you'll give some closing comments. Okay, yeah, so I think um, the most critical at whatever point you are at, whether as a new beginner in an organization looking for work or you are an experienced professional, I think the most important attribute is being a provider of solutions to whoever it is that you are working with. So applying yourself fully, understanding what's keeping the employer awake at night and how do you provide a solution for them. Many times, a number of people might be tempted to look at the employer's one who's providing a solution to them by paying them a salary. Uh, but it should actually be the other way around. The mindset should be what solution am I providing for my employer at uh, whatever stage uh, one is at. Uh, being able to apply yourself in that manner then also is where the growth comes and many opportunities then follow after that once you're known as a solution uh, provider. And uh, importantly, always ensure that you are delivering more to your employer than you're being. When I speak to, to younger people in the profession, I tell them uh, the notion that you should be making a profit from your employer, uh, that uh, if your employer is paying you 20000 I'll deliver value of 10000 so there's a profit. Uh, should be very far away from your mind. Uh, always deliver more than what your employer is uh, giving to you. Thank you. Solid stuff. Thank you for the two hours of speaking. It's uh, time for the closing words and then I'll let you go. And then hopefully we'll also have you guys back after the uh, full year is out so that we can analyze and maybe we can spend an hour also taking people through the financials, which will be a really good thing. I'll start with the smaller shareholder and then the larger shareholder can finish and then we can say goodbye. I'm, I'm happy to go first and uh, then uh, close, uh, then uh, some can close. Yeah, so thank you all for, and we remain available to provide any clarifications, both for Centum PLC and Centum Real Estate. Uh, speaking for some, we had uh, over 100 people on the call. I'm hoping that we'll have 100 new customers by tomorrow uh, so that some can account for his time in January. But yes, I think we are on, on an important journey, uh, providing housing
housing solutions in Pan-Africa, on the Pan-African continent. And it's one that we are very excited about, being able to provide uh, that uh, housing solution. Our business center is to create investment opportunities, and uh, we, it's a journey that we're going to continue on. And uh, we look forward to people being able to participate with us in uh, any way, either as uh, shareholders of Centum, as customers of Centum, in whichever uh, manner. So thank you very much. Thanks for taking your two hours with us. And uh, God bless you. Thank you, Moremi. I think we all had Moremi. So I'm looking for 100 uh, new customers. And just to, to let you in on a secret, an unspoken secret, whenever you invest in an apartment in two rivers, you are effectively living somewhere between Runda and Ruslin, where you need 100 million plus to live from a price point starting from 5 million. Not many people are aware of that particular secret. So when I bought my home at Two Rivers, it's because I always wanted to live in Runda, but I got an opportunity to still live in Runda, but it's a significant discount to what I would otherwise have paid. It's not the kind of location would expect apartments starting from 4.7 million and going upwards. That's really the gem in it, that it is offering just through those development rights and being able to bulk up, it's offering ordinary Kenyans like you and I to live in both Runda and Roslyn, but at a price point of what you're a typical middle-class guy, or at a price point, even in some cases, cheaper than uh, uh, Ruaka, even though you cannot obviously compare the two prices. Uh, so that's me, Mokaya, taking advantage of your platform to sell. So thank you for that. To Fred's point, we do appreciate the more than 100 people taking their time to listen to us. Very good questions, and I hope we've been able to answer them in a way that unbundles what is misconceived as complexity in the business. It's really a simple com- the business is one approaches it from understanding the intrinsic value, as we explained earlier. So thank you, Mokaya, and your team for always hosting us graciously. I have a good evening. All right, I'll send you a bill for the advertising, but I, I prefer to be paid in shares. So if you issue more shares in the process, you can also send them. Thank you so much, Fred and Sam. Uh, it's really a pleasure.